0: Business was exciting when I was young and I was growing and it was great. Oh my gosh, I just got Prince Albert. I just got King Hussein. You know, I'm just, I'm doing the home for the owners of Bed Bath & Beyond. That's very exciting. But then there comes a point when there's got to be something more. And if there's not, you, you're, I believe you're missing out on the, the diamonds of life and living. (music)
1: Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high-end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover-worthy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Friends of Build Magazine, I am Ted Bainbridge and I'm Thrilled to be joined by Thomas Berger of Thomas Berger Designs in Las Vegas, Nevada. Thomas, when did you start your design firm?
0: I started in 1987 um, in New York City. I was 27 years old.
1: Okay. And you were in Manhattan. That must have been 1987. October of 87 is when the stock market crashed five hundred and four 508 That's points. That's exactly right. Perfect timing. Yeah, it is perfect timing.
0: <laughs> well, I had worked for very large architectural firms um, in Manhattan. Okay. Um, I.M.Pay, uh, Philip Johnson, and then I worked for a rather large um, architecture and design firm. After that, Peter Rina Architects, and then after that, I decided to start my own company.
1: Was it intimidating? I mean, Manhattan is, is intimidating to start with.
0: I had lived there for for four years before starting my business. Okay. Uh, of course, it was intimidating. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere.
1: That's what Frank Sinatra said.
0: And it's absolutely true.
1: Is uh, The people from New York, everybody I meet from New York, they run at a different level. I was born in Toronto, and Toronto is kind of the New York of Canada, and Now I've been on the West Coast for 35 years. When I go back East, because we do a lot of business there, they run at a different pace than we do.
0: We absolutely do. Um, We're actually the nicest, kindest people in the world. People just don't realize it (laughs) because we're moving so quickly.
1: Yeah. So if
0: you're walking slowly in front of us, we will move you aside.
1: Well, you're very directional. Like you're going to tell people exactly what you think and you're not going to worry about...
0: That's absolutely true. We shoot straight from the hips. There's no time for, you know, soft talk. Okay. We, just, we hit it
1: hard and we hit it,
0: you know, earnestly.
1: So when did you come to Vegas and why? I
0: came to Vegas in uh, about 18 years ago. I thought I was going to retire. I, uh, we were open 24-6 in New York City. I had 153 people on staff, traveled around Your
1: firm? World. Yes. That's enormous.
0: Yes, it is. And uh, I just wanted an easier life. So I tried to pick a city that I thought would never sleep, such as New York. Yep. But I wanted someplace a little calmer, so I chose Las Vegas. Shortly after moving here, I learned to rock climb. I was hiking. I had a dog. I have a pool, and then I got bored and I wanted to go back into business.
1: Okay, so you get my brain racing. You had 153 people at 27.
0: Yes. Well, it didn't start at 153.
1: No, no, people. I know, but still.
0: <laughs> I um, well, what I was doing was um, I took a lot of educational courses in business development, motivational. Um, I actually not only took the courses, but ended up teaching the courses in motivational speaking, business advancement courses, things of that nature. I decided to create an internship program, which was sort of the highlight of my life, in my opinion. And I would have 25 to 50 students from all over the world come, and they never left. So the firm just got bigger and bigger without meaning to.
1: Okay. This is the beauty of doing these podcasts. I mean, I did some research on you. I didn't, this pearl didn't come up. And as somebody who owns a business that is growing, there is a difference between having 20 people and 200 people.
0: Yes, there is (laughs) very much so. It was, um, it grew organically. It wasn't on purpose. Uh, but my company just, the phone never stopped ringing. So I didn't, uh, didn't think about how many people were joining the team. I just wanted to make sure my clients could be well taken care of.
1: Were you the sole face of the brand? Yes, yes. So with 153 people, is that challenging for your clients to come in? And it's Manhattan. Those are pretty powerful people.
0: Yes, actually. My clients are probably the top 1% in the world. I work for a lot of royalty, a lot of uh, CEOs of large corporations, a lot of celebrities. So, yes, their their time is demanding. Um, and I think that's why my firm grew so large was that when you know that your client's time is so precious, yep. that you want to make sure that everything is ready the second they walk in and that their project actually goes really seamlessly.
1: What is the difference? If you've dealt with people of royalty, of significant wealth, obviously you continue to. What's the difference between dealing with somebody with old money compared to new money? <laughs>
0: that's a very good question Ted. and
1: that's not that you just got my brain there that is not on the sheet
0: that's a very good question Ted it there is a difference old money understands quality differently than new money new money seems to want to put on more of a show which and I don't think there's anything wrong with that
1: well we're in Vegas so it's exactly, all about the show
0: exactly old money they don't care about putting on a show but they want quality and New Money wants to put on a show, and they don't quite understand quality, but I'm going to bring that to the Las Vegas market finally.
1: Okay. It is, I will say, out of the markets that we do, Vegas and Santa Fe are the most complex for us to wrap our arms around. And we're in Palm Beach, we're in Naples, we're in Hawaii, Scotts, you know, Jackson Hole. But these two markets are the complexities are interesting
0: I think it's because the specifically the Las Vegas market is a very young market we're just now expanding into 20 thirty thousand square foot homes we're just now building we when I moved here 20 years ago we were 30 years behind everyone else in architecture and design we made quantum leaps architecturally um, we're still not quite there but we are we have made quantum leaps and I think It's a market that is very young, as I said. So it needs to evolve. And there's a lot of things that I think the architects here and the clientele here are missing. A key ingredient in architecture and design. I'm not going to disclose what that key ingredient is because that's my focus to take my business in the next year.
1: That's your secret sauce.
0: That's right.
1: And so it's just a little tease?
0: Oh, absolutely, yes.
1: <laughs> it's all part of the show. That's right. Do you do, do you do work up in the summit?
0: Oh, absolutely. We just completed several homes up there, several CFOs and CEOs. It's a beautiful complex up there, one of the prettiest actually in Vegas.
1: What has Discovery Land and Mike Meldman done to change the landscape? Because you've got lots up there that are selling for $5 million. Oh, which more, yes. Right, but here you are in the middle of the desert. And the lots are significant but, but Discovery Land, their culture is like nothing I've ever seen. It's incredible.
0: Yes, I think their projects are really spectacular all over the world. They actually created a space and an environment that didn't exist here in Vegas before. We were leading towards it, but they actually sort of took the took the what is it, the, the cap off the bottle. Okay. Where they really created something spectacular. It's very beautiful up there. I, you know, Celine Dion has a beautiful yep. home up there. Um, most of my clients have either moved there from other places or are looking to build newly this coming year.
1: Yeah, we, uh, we know some folks who are up there, and uh, their home is, is on the 15th and 17th, so it stares right down the fairways. And it's spectacular. Playing golf there, the experience, anybody who gets a chance to play at any Discoveryland property, it's just, it's beyond belief.
0: Yeah, it's very beautiful up there.
1: So what what do you see the summit doing for the landscape? And I don't mean physical. That's not a pun or anything. But the landscape of Vegas in taking the... the
0: I think it set a standard. I think yeah. it raised the standard. Again, I still think they have a way to go. I still think they're missing a key ingredient. But we're very close. We're very close. It's actually the reason I reincorporated and moved out here. Um, even though I moved a long time ago... I chose not to reincorporate and put an office here in Vegas until the summit was a reality.
1: What does it do to challenge a development like that? Challenges everybody. Challenges the interior designers, the architects, the builders.
0: It does indeed. A lot of the architects, unfortunately, have been from other states. Okay. So, Because I think that the architects here um, needed to wake up to the to the direction that we needed to go into. There are a few very good architects here, and they are building beautiful homes up there. So it's it's created um, a challenge for architects and designers to educate the public and their clients, because I think a lot of the mentality here in Vegas was very transitory, and they didn't understand building a 20,000-square-foot home or spending millions of dollars for a plot of land. But once you're up in the mountains and and, and the the, um, canyons, up at Red Rock. I mean, it, the views are magnificent. They, they rival any ocean view in Palm Beach. I know because I have an office in Palm Beach. Oh, you do? Yes, I do.
1: Oh, dumb me. I didn't even know that. Mm, live and learn. Yeah. Do you really? <laughs> I'm I all mean, over
0: it, the country. Yeah, I'm all over the country. And,
1: and it would make sense for you being from New York because Palm Beach is full of New Yorkers.
0: Absolutely. All my clients in New York had a home in Palm Beach.
1: So how often do you go to Palm Beach?
0: Every time I get a project.
1: Oh, you do? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I am. I am super impressed with what's going on in Palm Beach.
0: It's spectacular.
1: Uh, Although
0: sadly, I saw them tear down a lot of the old mansions. At the time, one of my clients owned the second largest home there. Okay. It basically they almost tore it down.
1: And it was on Palm Beach Island.
0: It was yes, yes, right over. It was um, Janet Annenberg Hooker's home. Okay. Um, Janet Annenberg, Walter Annenberg's sister. But yeah, it was a beautiful home.
1: Yeah, when we we stayed at a place called the Bend, which is a new boutique hotel, right? It's in West Palm, but it it looks over, and you basically we walked across the bridge, and and it's just such a beautiful area.
0: It is a very beautiful area. I just don't like hurricanes.
1: No, and there, uh, we were there just before Ian. Yes, we we're in Naples three days before Ian, and and we were I was in Naples last week, and the devastation is shocking.
0: I had a home. My parents also had a home down in Florida. And I visited pretty much every weekend because I had a lot of clients down there. But it's, I just don't like the weather.
1: So what is exciting about what's going on in Vegas?
0: Vegas is, as I said, it's a young community um, that's just growing in a direction of permanent residency. Before, as I think everyone sort of knows, Vegas has been very transitory. Um, Bringing the teams in, uh, Mark Davis, who who brought in the Raiders and the Aces, uh, he is a client of mine, and he owns the two teams. He has come like a tour de force. He's really bringing in a sense of community. And I think once you have teams come in, you build a sense of community. People want to plant their seeds here, so the homes are becoming more stately, more permanent people want to raise their families here, they realize it's not just a town of gambling and drinking. It goes way beyond that. We have beautiful natural uh, topography, beautiful uh, landscapes that people are really recognizing as something special. And our tax rate is much better than most neighboring states. That doesn't hurt.
1: Well, I remember when Bill Foley brought in the, uh, the Golden Knights, and I've never, ever... And I think they're the first professional teams. Yes. And then Davis Springs the Raiders in, right? Yes. I have never ever seen a community and being Canadian, we're all about hockey. <laughs> I have never and and I do business in Whitefish and have for twenty years, so I know what Bill Foley has done to that community. And he is all about giving to the community and he's an incredible community builder.
0: Yes, and, and I think through the through the teams, as I said, it's funny, um, I am a hockey fan only because of Rod Bear. I don't know if you know who oh, that was. number seven. Yes. So Eddie he, Jackman,
1: Rod Bear. Yeah, yeah, of he course. He
0: was one of my best friends. He and his wife, Judy, okay. um, and clients of mine as well back in, on the East Coast in yep. New York. And he actually taught me what hockey was all about. It was a new sport for me. My sport was judo. I was national champion for seven years in judo Were you up. really? Yes, a long time ago when I was a kid.
1: So what do you take from, and by the way, uh, I, my son and I have been to every rank in the NHL. My wife, I think, is at number 25. Uh, We might go to the Flyer game tonight because they're in town. And MSG is, if nobody's been to MSG, it is the greatest facility that I've ever been to. Yeah, spectacular. Yeah. The, the history, the concerts, the the sports teams, everything that's gone through there, it sends chills down your spine when you look at that magnificent building. And it's on the sixth floor of an office tower.
0: It's <laughs> yeah. bizarre. It is strange. It is strange, but isn't it wonderful?
1: Oh my God, it's fantastic. So what do you take from judo that you apply to business? Because there's a tremendous amount of discipline.
0: That's exactly the word I was going to, to throw to you. Yes, it is discipline. When I moved to Vegas, other design firms... I notice don't have the same hours that I have is a, a way of saying it. Perhaps it's a lot more casual. Whereas, you know, we start my, my typical day starts at four 30 in the morning with my East coast clients calling me and their, their contractors calling me that we do zoom meetings at four 30 in the morning. And then I'm at my office by eight o'clock. And then I usually try to leave by five, five 30. So it's the discipline that I learned in judo.
1: Yeah. It's uh... I always, I, I'm a big sports fanatic, so I like to assimilate the discipline because people go, oh yeah, you know, you're the best at what you do. It's so easy. Uh, no, there's hours of oh, preparation.
0: Absolutely. Hours and hours and hours of everything. There's not a night that I go home without my laptop to do extra work. Okay. If I'm not going to a charity event, I'm working.
1: So what challenges you with the homes that you're doing today compared to say 20 years ago?
0: I think what challenges me most is the quality or lack of quality that I see going on in building. When I was uh, 16 years old, I started construction um, during my summer vacations in high school. Started building homes. We built very low-end homes for first home buyers and or people who were just wanting a refuge while they were building their main home. And I remember coming home and telling my parents how, how disappointed I was. With the building standards, but again, the homes were selling for like forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 And I unfortunately sometimes see the same low quality in 5 to $10 million homes today. And that disturbs me. I find that upsetting.
1: Isn't that amazing?
0: It's very disappointing. And, and again, that's something I'd like to bring to the Las Vegas market is a beacon of quality that just seems to be missing a lot of times.
1: And it's all in the finishings, isn't it?
0: Um, yes and no. It's actually right from the very beginning, from the moment you you choose how and where to pour your slab. People tend not to do light studies, so they don't know that you know the sun's going to come in their, their bedroom window at you know a certain hour. They they just don't take the time to really go through the processes that are necessary to actually have a quality built home. And again, that's going to be part of my future of Thomas Berger Design. I want to bring that to the Las Vegas market.
1: It's interesting when you talk about that because the quality of homes that are being built in Montana or, or Jackson are incredible. Yes, incredible yes, By comparison yes And I look at some of this stuff and we've been in whether it's McDonald Highlands or a Sky we've been in some very expensive homes and I scratch my head at the at the finishings to those homes.
0: Yes it's, I don't think it's just the finishing sadly it's sometimes the architecture itself when I see five bedroom homes where you're going to have, I would assume at least five people living in, in the home and your great room can only sit four and a half people. I mean, I don't understand. So the functionality of design is missed. That's one of the things missing here. The architecture is a wow. So we finally made that quantum leap to wow architecture, but the functionality is truly missing. And I think that's something that Frank Lloyd Wright really had down. He created from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. And I think you have to be, you have to burn that candle at both ends at the same time. Because if you're thinking about architecture without the end goal of the design, or you're thinking about design without encompassing the architecture, you're going to run into a mismatch in the center. And I see that constantly with almost every home.
1: So how do you stick handle the, the situation where you look at the designs I'm a big advocate of and Leslie and I are building a house in Scottsdale right now, so we're in the throes of it ourselves. But I'm a big advocate of you hire the the builder, the architect and the interior designer all at day one. Exactly. So that they work together. So how do you stick handle it when when you do see that whether it's scale or you know, it just it's not going to flow correctly? How do you deal with it with the architect and the client? To make sure, because the builder's just executing what the architect puts together. Exactly,
0: exactly. Well, see, back in New York, I was a full-service architecture and interior design firm. I am not an architect, but I had enough architects and engineers on my team that we were full-service. And I'm probably going to head back into that realm this year with my business here in Las Vegas. Because I think that there's a miscommunication between design and architecture that is sadly an enormous gap. And it doesn't seem to be moving together. I know some architectural firms have hired some interior designers to be part of their staff. It's usually a younger generation that, frankly, doesn't have a lot of experience. And when you're building a $10, $15 million home, you want your designer to have a vast amount of experience. Yep. Because, frankly, they're the ones who should lead the shape and form of everything in your home. And I don't see that happening. So my firm will bring that to light where it's finally where both disciplines come together and actually join perfectly in the center as opposed to what I'm seeing now in the
1: market. Because the functionality of the house, they're gonna live in for years, hopefully, and you don't wanna be sitting there going, uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right or it's out of proportion or...
0: Exactly, well, if I have a fed five bedroom home, I wanna be able to seat more than four and a half people yeah. in my great room to yeah. watch the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah. So do you get much pushback from architects when you, when you address these problems? Every day. <laughs> I,
0: try, I try to do it nicely, but as a New Yorker, again, I don't really mix my words. I, I'm very straightforward. When I see someone trying to put a wine cellar on the top floor of a two-story home here in the desert, you know, I, I, I tend to think they've lost their mind. Yeah, I get a lot of pushback, which is why I'm finally deciding to go full, full forward and create a team that is... Um, that creates both the architecture and the design again
1: Oh, like I did in New York what a great way to spoil great wine is to put them in an environment where it's going to get too hot
0: exactly I mean to put a, a wine cellar on the top floor of a house just doesn't make sense no just doesn't
1: no it's uh, it's sacrilegious actually yes. I mean you've got to respect that wine it tastes
0: fantastic <laughs> well and, and the funny thing is is the the, the the client who I adore is up in the summit I had met him after being diagnosed with cancer, I had met him 10 minutes later at a lunch where we were being introduced. I told him when I, when he showed me the drawings from the architect, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. It just doesn't make sense. It's stupid. And then I treated him to lunch. And I thought, well, I'll never hear from him again. But, um, so it's not only the fact that I'm a New Yorker, but it was also the fact that I had just been diagnosed with cancer 10 minutes before. I just didn't want to waste time. I said exactly what I thought. And, um, Funny thing was, he hired me and became one of my favorite all-time clients. We're still very great friends. In fact, he called me yesterday, and I just can always—I'm always excited to hear from him. And, and let me tell you, he doesn't even have a second floor. It's a one-story. Okay. And the wine cellar is in perfect condition to store his rather elaborate and spectacular collection of wine.
1: So he's a good friend to have. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> he is.
0: He and his wife are just beautiful people.
1: Okay, so now you open the door on a personal. Are you okay now?
0: Oh, yes. Thank you for asking. Yes. I only had it for 28 days and had it removed.
1: Oh, okay.
0: My father actually died of this kind of cancer, so I took very aggressive action to get rid of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's not something that you want to let the uh I don't mess around. The I'm a new worker,
0: and I'm a very straightforward, focused person, so I don't really mess around. Cancer doesn't stop me.
1: So how do you... You must you must have thought though, you must it's mortalizing. I mean my dad died of cancer and mm-hmm. it makes you feel like you're no longer immortal. There is it does an wake, ex- expiration date to all of us.
0: Yeah. It was a huge wake up call. Working twenty four six in New York City. I think that's one of the reasons I came here was to have a more restful life. And I think a lot of a lot of the stress from New York and, and, and working all those hours probably was the cause for, for that to, to come up in my system, the cancer. So it was a wake up call, but like I said, I nipped it in the bud very quickly and because I have too many things that I want to do in life. Yep. So I was not going to let it affect me adversely.
1: So I love your idea of having architecture and interior design.
0: Well yeah, it's not an it's not a new concept. It just somehow got lost and, and the relationship really Developed this enormous gap between the two Frank Lloyd Wright as I had mentioned before really had it right where where he mastered every aspect of the home For some reason and like I said, there are some architectural firms who have created a design Faction of their of their business, but it's it's still not What the business actually or the industry actually needs it's still not the right connection But hopefully what I'm going to create will be
1: so your clients they must absolutely love you when the project is finished.
0: The, the answer is yes to that. They usually start loving me in the middle of the project. They usually find me a. So little, you're
1: a pain in the ass in the beginning. I'm pain
0: in the ass <laughs> in the beginning. Because, yeah, it's absolutely true, because I actually tell them the truth and I tell them what to expect and I don't sugarcoat anything. And that may scare a lot of people for the week. I'm, I'm not for the week. My my clientele, uh, they're very strong. As I said, they're usually captains of of big industry and celebrities and and royalty, so they sort of um, they're not used to having someone speak so abruptly and bluntly to them. Okay, but that's I'd rather they know the worst possible scenario up front. But then once they see the home taking shape and form. They see the magic that we're creating together and all of a sudden everything shifts and they start inviting me over for dinner. I have 17 godchildren and they are all... Do you really? They are all from clients. All of them are from clients.
1: How How do you remain... You must be a very curious person. I just think designers have to be curious in order to remain fresh. And so it's not going through the motions, and especially when you're dealing with the clientele that you've got.
0: I think if you're not traveling and educating yourself constantly, both in business and in design, okay, I think that you're, you stop growing. And once you stop growing, you're going to wither. So if you're not up at 5 o'clock in the morning learning and, and looking for things and, and experiencing things, you're going to wither.
1: How long did it take you to learn that?
0: Seven years old, my first state championship in judo. Was it really? Yes. So I learned very early that you've got to get up, do the work, and and expand yourself. I'm from a small town in Indiana originally. So there was a lot that I wanted to see and learn. And my parents and my grandparents, my grandfather retired at 19 years of age. He,
1: he, He retired at 19?
0: Yes, he was very fortunate. He was pretty much on his own at 13 and retired at 19. So he was homeless and alone at 13.
1: Pretty fast six years.
0: Yes, very. But he was very smart and way ahead of his time. Most of the things he used to impart to me as a child... I now read in books and go and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to seminars. And it's the same thing. My grandfather taught me all throughout my life, but he, he trained golden glove boxers. He was a ref, a ref for golden glove boxing. He could beat Minnesota fats on the pool table. Every time he played him, his golfing buddies were Ben Hogan and Sam Sneed. Um, he traveled on Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of that, that inspiration came from my grandfather who was He could have just rested on his laurels and done nothing after the age of 19, but instead he did all sorts of things, collected art and antiques. I mean, I grew up with Peter Paul Rubin paintings and Van Dyke, and there were copies of furniture in museums that we actually had the original of. So, I mean, he was constantly collecting and doing and meeting and and greeting, and uh, he never knew a stranger. So I think he was a real inspiration to me.
1: So... Where was was he in Indiana? He was in Indiana, yes. And what did he do? Like, what did he do to create this this success?
0: Well, he actually, as a young boy, he was on his own. His mother had passed away, and at thirteen, he moved down to Texas to grade lumber for his uncle. Invested his his small monies that he made.
1: What year is this? Twenties. Uh,
0: I, I I'm terrible at dates. Oh, okay, to be honest okay. With you. My mother's ninety five, so. My grandfather would be a lot older. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So um, he invested his his earnings into royalties. And at a certain point, uh, a, a large oil uh, came in. Um, I, I think it was called the Mark Burnett Oil Gush. Okay. And overnight, he was a multimillionaire.
1: At 19? At 19. And then his wife... And to have the guts to invest in something.
0: Very smart. At a 19-year-old, yeah, wow. very smart. And his wife, my grandmother, she actually created, which is very unusual for a woman back in that day, what is called credit thrift. So she was in the banking industry as a woman that long ago.
1: What is credit thrift?
0: Credit thrift was like a savings and loan. Okay. And then it got bought out by larger companies, but so as a female in banking back in the day. So you can see, I come from a family who, they were go-getters. My father was a plastic surgeon at the Mail Clinic. Charlie Mail was his best friend. My mother... Created, uh, you know, all sorts of things in charity. Created the great books for the, for the Girl Scouts. I, it was, uh, no, Junior League, I'm sorry. Saved the largest na- uh, forest within a city limit. So, I mean, you know, we, we did things.
1: I love that story.
0: Yeah, we, I think my, it's inherent in my, in my family to get out and do things.
1: How, what inspiration? I mean, that story, first of all, your grandfather obviously was the inspiration of your life. Yes, it's interesting, not that this is about me, but my grandfather was a very successful businessman, pharmacist, but businessman. And the only thing I wanted out of his estate, the only thing was the portrait of him because I was the only one in the family who kind of had that entrepreneurial gene as well. So when you're talking about your grandfather, and I can, I can see the parties, the elegance, the class. You've obviously mentored a lot of younger people. And I also want to touch on the fact that what do you do as a 41-year-old when you're retired? I mean, that's way too <laughs> too early to kind of shut down the, you know, and not do anything. But what do, you, what do you tell the younger generation about, like your story of your grandfather is inspiring. And it's something I get frustrated with the younger generation right now because they just want everything handed to them.
0: There's a lot of truth in that, Ted, sadly. However, one of my greatest, I guess, achievements, but but I don't really want to use that word. It's actually one of the most exciting things I've ever created in my life was an internship program, which I had mentioned earlier, where people from all over the world and from all ages, which was quite spectacular. One of my favorites, she was 77 years old, I believe, when she joined my internship program in design.
1: As an intern?
0: Yeah, she was a trust fund baby and um, just a lovely woman. So I had kids from all over the world and then I had adults from all over the world. Created an internship program. I actually, um, later on in life, when I first moved here, I created a howtosucceedindesign.com, which you can visit that website. And it teaches designers how to actually run the business. I don't teach them how to design. I teach them how to run a business. And I think that's the thing that I like to impart on the younger generation is what it takes to actually serve your clients and serve an industry and serve a community. And I think that that's um, the thing that I think is the most important part to impart to the new generation is actually how to serve because they all want to be served and be given everything. But when you actually transform their perspective to serving others, they light up. They just weren't aware of that aspect of being human. They're so used to just being handed everything that it doesn't occur to them. The other part of being human is serving So when I see them light up and they, I mean, two of the young ladies in my first program back in New York, one was Arab and one was Jewish. There was a little bit of um, tension between
1: the two. Okay. So this is back in 87 or something like that?
0: Probably in the early nineties when I created the internship program.
1: And this is what caused you to end up with a firm of 153 people. Okay. Okay.
0: So these two young ladies, there was a lot of tension there. They ended up at the end of my program six months later, created a business together in Israel for world peace. So that's what can come out of, of mentoring the younger generation. They take, they, once you show them a different way of being, they just, they exploded into something you could not imagine. So I, that's the most exciting part of my life is actually mentoring. The younger generation, because sadly, no one mentored me. My grandfather was the closest thing I had to a mentor. And sadly, he passed away when I was living in Europe, just out of college. Okay. So by the time I moved to New York to start my own business, he was gone. Bummer. Yes, exactly.
1: Bummer. But great story about your, those two ladies. It's it's funny, if, if people would just kind of talk to each other. Mm-hmm. With let's start with respect, and and if you lose the respect, you lose the respect. But let's assume that we're all being respectful. It's amazing; most of us are awesome people.
0: It's a direction that the entire world needs to start focusing and refocusing on because it's something that, honestly, when I listen to the news, doesn't exist.
1: No, no, and yet you walk by those people on the street, regardless of what their color is. Hi, how you doing? I'm exactly. great. How are you? And you go oh, you're a nice person even though you don't look the same as me. Who cares? Exactly.
0: Or even if your politics are not the same. R- who cares? Or your religious beliefs. Yeah, it just, it, sadly, we, see, in New York City, we just didn't have that. That didn't occur. The, You know, with 13 million people, you didn't have time to, no. to make those distinctions. They were either friendly or not friendly. Yep. Positive or not positive. Interesting or not interesting. Had nothing to do with any of their choices in politics, religions, colors. None of that. You just didn't have time to make those silly distinctions.
1: What are your core principles or core values that you live by? Honesty. That's it?
0: That's it. Well, there is one more. And I steal it from a 1937 film by Frank Capra called Lost Horizons. Okay. Ronald Coleman, I think it was Ronald Coleman, asked the, the, the guru there, you know, how, how, why don't you have police forces? You know, how do you keep control of the people? And his answer was, we live by one rule, be kind. It's really that simple. Be kind to the planet. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. So be kind.
1: In stressful situations, is it easy to be kind?
0: No, of course not. Nothing's easy. You know, in one of my lectures on how to succeed in design, it takes a lot of hard work to have an easy life. It's very easy to have a difficult life. And I think that's true with in any situation. It's it takes a lot of work to discipline yourself. It takes a lot of work to be kind when someone is shouting out the exact opposite of what you believe in and yet to still be kind. It it takes discipline. We're human.
1: Yeah, I re- I read something about the uh the four kids in in Idaho who were savagely murdered and one of the dads says, "No, it wasn't this one. It but it was another where their kid was brutally murdered, and the dad said to the, uh, the person who killed him, I forgive you. Exactly. That would be brutal.
0: Yes, you know, there's a phenomenal movie in, uh, that was created a few years ago called The Shack. And if you haven't seen it, you I think need, I have seen The you Shack. You need to watch it, yeah. The gentlemen who, uh, who, they tried to get it produced. No one would produce it. They were friends of a friend of mine in New York City. And finally it was produced. And it was most, one of the most powerful movies I've ever seen called The Shack. And one of the lessons, the, the, I don't want to spoil the story. Well, I
1: think but I, I, think I've, I think I've either.
0: So a young daughter was murdered, brutally murdered. Okay. And part of, the, part of the process of moving the father through that spiritually was that he had to forgive. He had to forgive. It's a beautiful movie.
1: Uh, Do you remember who the actors are?
0: You don't honestly know? Oh, yes, there was one who I adore. She played God. I don't remember her name. She was in the movie Help. I just don't remember the names. I'm not great with names.
1: My wife is sitting here. We have seen it.
0: It's a great movie.
1: But we need to see it again.
0: I took a lot of my godchildren to see it. Okay. Uh, and it was released the same weekend, I think, that Beauty and the Beast was. And it didn't occur to me to take these young kids to Beauty and the Beast. I took them to the shack. And then after I did, I thought, oh, and I had already seen it, of course. So, And then I thought, oh, maybe that was a wrong choice. But when they went home to their parents, they exploded. They were so excited. They told them all about the movie. The parents ended up going to see the movie. And it really created something an open discussion for for the generation of the the children and the parents to actually have something I think of value to discuss at the dinner table so I'm glad I did it although I was a little nervous after I did it at first until until I, I heard back from the parents what a what a great experience it was for their children and what the dinner table conversation turned into that night so I guess it was the right choice
1: so I want to go back to when you were 41 years old and you retired which I think is a pretty young age. I think you said it was 41.
0: Yeah, well, I think I, I moved here in 2005, so I was 45.
1: Okay, so, so you retire, and then what did you learn about yourself, and what made you antsy that, you know, I've still got more to give?
0: Ted, that's a really great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I learned a lot about myself. When you move to a town where nobody knows you, you no longer have a business of 153 people. Your phone is not ringing. You don't even have a company anymore. You really have to look at, well, who am I? Your, your identity is gone because we tend to identify ourselves with what we do. So, you know, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a doctor. It's like, you know, I'm a dentist. I'm a, an architect. Once you, when you when you associate yourself with what you do, you really have to deconstruct all your thinking to find who you really are. And that's why I did that. I moved here to really have time to myself to be with nature. And we have beautiful nature out here. I learned to rock climb. I hiked every single day. I swam in my pool every single day. But it was a it was a journey to find out who I was. I became very insecure when I moved here because I had no identity here. No one knew who I was. No one knew that I have dinner with Prince Charles, who's now King Charles, I'm part of the Prince's Trust Fund. Okay. Nobody knows that about me here in Vegas. Uh, nobody knows that, who my clientele is, you know, or was. So it was a kind of an identity crisis. But I actually got in touch with a higher self, which was yearning to get out in New York. But I just was working so hard, I didn't take time for that higher self to to come to the surface. But here I have. So it's it's been a nice sabbatical. I actually, as I said, when I first moved here, I created the, the it's an eleven hour educational video called How to Succeed in Design because I wanted to teach other designers how to do what I did. I still give lectures around the country. Actually I'm going to Ball State University this spring they invited me to come for a four day seminar to teach their architectural students about business.
1: So you 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 touched on something that I think is brilliant but intimidating at the same time. And that is you became insecure where your foundation was obviously rock solid in Manhattan. You got super uncomfortable, which I'm a big fan. I just think that growth happens when you're uncomfortable. And when you're comfortable, you get fat.
0: That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right.
1: And when you get fat, you get slaughtered because yeah. everybody's trying to knock you off anyway. That's right.
0: That's right. That's right. I think everyone should take a moment in time, however long that is. Um, In fact, there's a beautiful song, One Moment in Time. Okay. I think to take that one moment in time to see what you can really be, to expand into, I think, what we're meant to be and do. And unless you take the time to, to explore that aspect of your life, I think you miss out on the importance of life. Business was exciting when I was young and I was growing and it was great. Oh my gosh, I just got Prince Albert. I just got King Hussein. You know, I'm just, I'm doing the home for the owners of Bed Bath & Beyond. That's very exciting. But then there comes a point when there's got to be something more. And if there's not, you, you're, I believe you're missing out on the the diamonds of life and living.
1: Yeah, I want everybody to kind of digest that because... How many people, because you deal with, I mean, you've got a pretty nice Rolodex. Mm, Yes. How many of those people, and I'm thinking of Richard Branson, who seems to live on the edge, but he's full of life and he's 70 some odd, whatever he is. Exactly. And yet, then there's a lot of people that maybe have been successful, but they don't feel like they're worthy of the success. So they're insecure even in their own success.
0: I, yes, absolutely well, that happens a lot in Hollywood, as you know, yeah, so you have a lot of suicides, sadly, I think success is not what makes you secure, although it is an illusion of being secure. But once you're alone at home, you realize you're not secure you're not secure. that's right that, 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 that's that's sort of a facade who you are what you do in life is a facade it's not really who you are so I think by exploring giving what you can give that's when you really discover who you are when you discover how much you can give that's when you discover who you truly are I mean I was on the board of Nevada Ballet I started a dance company prior to that when I first moved here contemporary west dance theater still exists we dance at the smith center i'm no longer on the board because they sort of found their footing that's the first thing i did when i moved here we started the dance company i'm not a dancer by the way do a lot of charity da- you know ronald mcdonald saint jude in fact i'm going with i'm going down to memphis they're flying me down to memphis to go through the hospital i do a lot of work with saint jude
1: what danny thomas has built is just i mean so it's, kind yeah. yes yeah same with Arnold Palmer, the hospital yes. that he built in yes. Orlando.
0: Yes. I mean, there's so many things to give to. Now I'm working with the, the Boy Scouts of America. So that, I mean, there's just so many, and then I just discovered another charity uh, called Best Buddies. Just attended an event the other night, here here actually at the Design Center. Okay. Hosted, um, it, it was, it's, you know, I had just never heard of them before. So I mean, there's so many places to give not just of your time and money but you know your your knowledge and and that's one of the reasons I did go back into business because a young fella who I'd met he was doing some computer work for me he said you know you've got all this vast experience you need to give it to the next generation i basically took him off the street and said you've got a job let's build a business together and he knew nothing about design he knew his computers he knew nothing about design he knew nothing about anything that I did in life. And you know what? He ran my company for four years until he moved back to the mid, he moved to St. Louis. Unfortunately, I miss him terribly. But hopefully he'll pass that forward to whoever he's touching in life.
1: Yeah, you, uh, I'm really glad that we had this chat. I have learned so much. and And I had this conversation with somebody on our team probably last weekend talking about success. Because people, first of all, success is different for everybody yes so your level of success is different than mine that's different than my wife's and so on and so forth I'm also I think that success is an illusion it is because as soon as you reach whatever goal you want you go oh boy I'm successful no now there's something else I want to do and now there's some su- success isn't the destination
0: no it's not it's not
1: and your comment about giving
0: I believe that the destination is giving I believe that's how I, that's how I built my company. So how I built my company was how much can I give to a client? How much can I, how much can I actually alter their life by creating an environment that's life giving? So back in the eighties, it wasn't called wellness and well okay. You know, it wasn't called green architecture. None of that existed as a nomenclature or it existed as a concept, but it hadn't been given a name because not enough people we thinking about that. So when you're actually building your business with how much you can give, how much you can give protection to the planet, how much you can give to create a life-giving experience for the client, that's how my business grew so quickly. It wasn't just about creating beautiful homes. I'm very good at that, but it was something much more. It's actually about creating a space that I call God, that where God comes into people's lives, where they're inspired to be more and do more than they ever thought possible. And I think that has a lot to do with your environment. The Catholic Church has known that for centuries. Think about it, they built huge cathedrals and they knew the psychology of design. So when you walk into one of the huge cathedrals, you're humbled, you're humbled in the presence of God. And they knew that psychology of design and it has worked very well for them. They're one of the strongest institutions in the world. Mm -hmm. Washington DC was actually planned out very scientifically so that they would intimidate Visiting foreign dignitaries. That's how Washington D.C. was designed. The entire city, banking system has known that for years. Back in the day when we were kids, that you saw a lot of big cherry cabinetry and and dark green marble, the the and and all the big you know sort of bars, so that you couldn't reach into the tellers. That was so that you felt like your money was secure. They knew the psychology of design. Yep. There's a lot of psychology. It's all psychology in design, which I do have a minor in. However. Now, you know, banks are now, all that is gone. It's all very neutral, very beige. There's no separation between you and the teller. And that's because they needed to, to transform the, the psychology that they are friendly, that they became friendly and, and more accessible to the common man. So you, you can see simply in the banking system how they have changed their design very dramatically to keep up with what the psyche needed to be to, to attract the customers.
1: So when you look back on things that have evolved and as I'm listening to, and I'm listening to the, to, uh, you, you talk about banking or, and I'm thinking of the Rockefellers, I'm thinking of the melons, you know, people that you've either brushed, uh, rubbed shoulders with, or yes. what, who are the Titans today that are having the same impact? And are they having a positive impact on where we are?
0: Well, you know, I've been following Elon Musk recently, yep. and I would have to say I'm very excited with what I'm reading and what he's doing. I would have to say he's probably one of the titans today. You're going to find that Dolly Parton is one of the titans today, oddly enough. I is think. she really? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Not somebody you would expect me to to bring to the light today, but I'm going to. I think it was Rezos who just gave her $100 million to do as she felt good in the world. I think he picked exactly the right person. Okay. You know, you don't have to be on the front cover of every news magazine to be a titan. Sometimes you're just an amazing angel, like I think Dolly Parton is. Yep. And the changes she makes. She's an incredible lady. She is truly an incredible lady. And the changes she makes in the world are, I don't want to cry honestly sorry i teared up a little bit they're insurmountable they're insurmountable and if and if we don't start embracing that and following that lead we're going to be in trouble so hopefully we hopefully angels like that are coming to the surface all over the place
1: and you look at the grace that she does with everything and the joy It's not, there's nothing mean-spirited.
0: Never. The first time I saw her, I was a kid in Indiana, and she was on the Today Show. Okay. And I think Barbara Walters was interviewing her. And I just thought, I don't know who that woman is, but she's amazing. She just was honest about herself, laughed at herself. She exuded kindness. Everything about her just spoke angelic to me. And, you know, I... I try to tap into that energy as often as I can. All I have to do is picture her face, and that helps me become kinder. And we all have to have little triggers to remind us to be kind.
1: Yeah. Going back to your your tenets of life, be kind.
0: Mm, Yes, absolutely.
1: Thomas, thanks for spending an hour with us. You're welcome. This so, was thank you. awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I mean, it. this you. was awesome.
0: <laughs> we touched subjects I didn't expect to touch, so.
1: Well, and I never, like everybody says, hey, can you send me some questions? Sure, I've got questions. I mean, I'm curious, but the conversations go so quickly into different areas. Like about your grandfather, mm-hmm. that was, I'm not going to say it was the best because there were so many pearls in this in this conversation we had. But I just think that having respect, like, let's treat each other with respect. Be kind.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Let's assume that we're all going to be nice and we're not going to be angry like Dolly Parton. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, Thomas, thank you very much. And You're very welcome. next time. Thank you. And uh, next time we come back to Vegas, I'm going to bring a good bottle of wine. There and you go. And that's <laughs> the next thing that we're going to do.
0: That would be wonderful. I appreciate We'd it. We'd
1: love that. Thank anyway, you, Anyway, until next time, I'm Ted Bainbridge on uh, Friends of Build Magazine. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcast.